0: This is Victoria of the UnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Grieving Voices. This is episode 51 already. Wow, what a ride it has been. And if you've been with me since the beginning, thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. So today is episode 51, and it's takeaways and reflections of episode 49 with Darren Evans, which was loss and legacy, and episode 50 with... Ariel Arbuschides, widowed by suicide at 29 and three times not a mother. So, first, let me get into episode 49 with Darren Evans. We talked a lot about his app called Aftercloud that he had developed with the inspiration of his son and from their experience of his mother in law and his son's grandmother. Um, slowly declining from actually not slowly it was quite um, it was a more rapid decline because she had Lewy body Alzheimer's and in preparation for today's episode I actually well and I think it's very timely because um, just in the last couple days here on the news it is now uh, June eighth twenty twenty one this episode will air in a few days. Um but the FDA just recently approved uh it's called Adu helm. and it's also known as Adu <laughs> I do I'm botching this totally. Aducanumab. I don't know who can pronounce these drugs anyway half the time. Anyway, they just recently the FDA just recently approved this and it's the first of its kind uh treatment since 2003 and it's the first therapy that actually targets the fundamental pathophysiology of the disease which affects 6.2 million people in the US which I was really shocked when I read that number because I'm like that's that's a really high number of people with this debilitating disease um, it just takes so much from families and individuals, And um, I'm going to link the article uh, where I found that information in the show notes. So you can check that out if you like. But coming back to um, Darren's episode and his AfterCloud app, I mean, it's really being, it's being used in the music arts, like music therapy. He said he had mentioned in his, in that episode, if you haven't listened to it, he mentioned music therapists using this with their patients uh, to capture these moments that wouldn't be captured otherwise. So the family can see uh, the benefits that this therapy, music therapy, is, is the impact it's having in their loved ones' lives. Um, but his story of how this was born... Um, I think can touch all of us. It's applicable to all of us because we all love and we all lose someone eventually who passes. And what a beautiful way to capture memories and letters. Um, you can send messages. You can pre-plan messages to be sent on birthdays and anniversaries and um You can really help to create a memory bank, a scrapbook for a family, in essence, a digital scrapbook. Um, You can even capture in the person's words and in their voice, what do they want to experience at the end of their life? You know, if they're getting closer to that time, especially, you know, terminal patients, So you have it in their words, their, it's their voice sharing though, you know, if you can have that conversation, but first you have to be able to have that conversation. Right. And I could probably do a whole episode just on having the difficult conversation, but I just think that this app is applicable to so many aspects of our lives to capture the joy and the sorrow, right? Everything in between. Like Darren says, it's a life tech app. And, you know, a part of his um, branding and his messaging for it is, it's her voice I miss the most. I wish I could hear her again. I wish I could hear her one more time. And isn't that what we often say to ourselves after we lose someone? Like, I wish I could just hear his voice one more time or her voice. I would give anything, right? And like he said, if you capture it now, it's there for future generations. We have it for the future. Um, it's a you know you can leave that legacy for your loved ones. Um, I personally have downloaded the app. Um, I did present it to a family member who, you know, I think there is some skepticism. I think for some people with um, putting information out there. On the web or in an app or anything like that, so I do sympathize and recognize that for some people that's not a very comfortable thing to do. Um, and you know, perhaps I can bring Darren back and, or I can do a blog post follow up and and he can share some of those things. Those objections or, you know, those concerns that people might have about that part, you know, putting all of your stuff, you know, into an app. I can see where that would be a real concern for some people. But I think just like anything, you have to weigh the benefits with the cost. And, you know, what is someone going to do with someone singing happy birthday you know, what is someone going to do with um, a picture of you and your loved one on vacation? Um, you know, it, you can choose to put in it what you want. It doesn't have to be, you know, you're not putting in your social security number or anything like that, you know. So um, there are different apps for that, actually. I have a guest coming up um, that shares an app that's specifically for planning for disasters and like if something happened to you. So and that is a, a valid question that um, I'm hoping to, you know, share with you all as well. But with AfterCloud, it really is just a life tech app, just like many of the apps that we already use. Um, We always have to put in our information for that. And, you know, for many of the apps that we use, we have to include our date of birth and um, some even it's kind of freakish, right? When you when you're scrolling on Instagram or whatever, and all of a sudden you start seeing ads for something that you like downloaded in the app store. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. Is someone watching me, (laughs) you know, or even having a conversation with, you know, texting with someone and all of a sudden you start seeing ads. I we really do live in an incredible technology advanced time. I can't even imagine what it will be like years from now, but it comes with responsibility, right? And I know that there are people wanting to create good, quality, safe apps and other things that people can access that benefit their lives and enrich their lives. And Darren and the AfterCloud app is no different. It's a life enriching app maybe as well, instead of just a life tech app. There was another point in the conversation where Darren talked about this idea that, you know, when you go around the bend and In the UK, where he lives, back when, you know, growing up and things, he would hear this term, like going around the bend. He said that would be equivalent to going to the psychiatric hospital. And it's worth mentioning and noting in this episode, because I don't know that the shame or the stigma that existed then or maybe still does when it may be people still say around the bend in the UK I'm not sure but I, I do believe that this shame or stigma still exists today in the US and all over the world and I think that's you know it's wonderful that mental health has become a topic of discussion a huge topic of discussion in light of COVID-19 and this idea of mental health you know what if we actually called it emotional health because that's really what it comes down to doesn't it like like emotionally we can have breakdowns and breakthroughs right but and all of that the the grief and the sorrow and the joy and the pleasure like all of it exists and in, in the same time and all of that embodies emotional health so why do we call it Mental health. Because we cannot heal when we're stuck in our heads. It is the mental aspect of healing that is keeping us stuck, that is keeping so many people stuck. You cannot heal the heart with the head. So why do we continue to call it mental health? How about emotional health? And maybe that's the next blog post I write or you know my next uh shtick I get on (laughs) my next soapbox I suppose which I have been speaking up more about that you know let's call it emotional health because I think just the word mental is I don't know it just carries the shame with it I think too like people will use the term mental like He's gone mental or she's mental or I feel mental. Like, I feel like I've just, you know, you feel like you're crazy in grief. You do. You feel like you're going crazy. And, you know, if someone said to you, well, how's your mental health? How are you doing mentally? (laughs) Like, doesn't that feel different than if you were to say, well, how is your heart? And how are you doing emotionally it feels different, doesn't it, when I say the two and compare the two? And it's going to, because one feels supported, and one, the person may feel more seen and heard, and the other, if I say, how is your mental health? How is, how is your mind? How is your mental state? I would feel judgment, I would feel criticism. I would feel analysis. These are all the things that grievers don't want to feel. But this is often how society makes grievers feel. Criticized, analyzed, and judged. And so this is where words matter. Words matter. I think we should just get rid of mental health. We should. Hashtag emotional health. That's my new hashtag. (laughs) Really? I mean, think about it, right? And I think especially in early dementia, when it's unknown what is going on with someone, that especially if they're younger, because you just don't expect these symptoms, you don't expect those things, you don't expect Alzheimer's in younger people, but it happens. It's, you know, it does. It happens. And You know, to the outside world, it could look like, well, they're going kind of mental. They're kind of losing it. And it's a debilitating disease. It's debilitating. And it robs people of everything. Everything. And the thing is, is they know what's happening. They're very aware of what's happening. Especially early on, right? Right. And so I just think, especially in the arena of Alzheimer's, early onset, Alzheimer's, late onset, it doesn't matter when those early symptoms start to show up. It can be helpful to take a step back and look at the behaviors like what are they doing? Are these repetitive um is it and here's the thing again, they know it's happening. So no one's more frustrated than they are, right? Um, so you don't have to be Captain Obvious, but because that makes them feel shamed, right? That makes them feel like something is wrong with them, which there is, but it, there's a medical reason. And so its I imagine it probably takes years and years for someone to be diagnosed. Because for so long, we just think, oh, it's a part of aging, you're just getting forgetful. Um, I'm... Like in my early 40s, uh, I can tell you that I forget a lot of things. And it's often, though, when I have so much going on at the same time, my energy and my, my attention is diverted in so many different directions. It's not any wonder that I become forgetful. Um, this is different. You know, this is different. And, uh, yeah, I think if you start putting the cereal in the fridge time and time again and forgetting where you live, well, there's maybe something more there to explore, you know. But it's a wonderful thing that there is this new advancement in, in this drug that can hopefully bring some hope to people, because I really think that with such a disease like Alzheimer's, that is so debilitating and can drag on for years and years and years to be given a little sliver of hope, it would mean so much to people. So if you are wanting to capture your loved one's moments and your own and create your own legacy in a digital way, check out myaftercloud.com and I will definitely be putting that in the show notes as well. Up next, uh, the episode for Takeaways and Reflections is episode 50, again with Arielle, and there's a phrase that she mentioned several times in her episode, and I want to bring some clarification to it and just maybe describe it and explain it a little bit more, but she mentioned disenfranchised grief, which... Actually, it was a term that was coined in the 1980s by Professor Dr. Kenneth Boka, or Doka, Doka, I think it is. I can't read my own writing. Um, But in relation to a divorced woman whose ex-husband had died, and I think she was a student of his or something. I want to bring up again how the Grief Recovery Institute defines grief and it's the loss of hopes dreams and expectations and anything we wish that would have been or could be different better or more and so when we talk about disenfranchised grief it's usually related to a death that others may not see as emotionally significant or like a breakup of a marriage or a relationship or a friendship and it can relate to our emotional response to a change in someone we may have never even even met. It might be the loss of a pet, a home, or a job. It can even relate to abuse or a personal assault on your body. The list of things we might grieve are endless. And rather than creating a new term to describe these things that can be emotionally impactful, it would be far better if we simply expanded that established mindset about what grief really is. Grievers don't need new terms, they just need to be recognized as people dealing with loss of any kind, plain and simple. New terms don't help people move through a grieving experience. And if anything, trying to apply different terms only adds to the confusion and conflicting feelings a griever is already experiencing. And at best, this terminology only provides a label to define the problem, but does nothing to solve it. So when I hear terms like disenfranchised grief, so when I hear terms like disenfranchised grief, I just want to scream. It's grief. That's all it is. At the end of the day, it's grief. It doesn't need any other buzzwords or phrases or terms or anything of the like. like, Like I mentioned, it does nothing to solve what's really going on. That's my take on the whole thing. Actually, it's my the Grief Recovery Institute's take on disenfranchised grief and other terms about it. I actually have a blog post talking about these different terms, and I will link to it in the show notes. Because I really think it's important that we call it for what it is. And it's just four letters. It's all we need. (laughs) We don't need anything else. Um, Because it's all these terms and everything that's really keeping... People stuck, I think, too. Circling back to my conversation with Ariel, disenfranchised grief came up because of her personal experience of losing her spouse at the age of 29 to suicide. And she had that experience of feeling it was disenfranchised grief because, you know, it's often minimized, especially in the case of suicide. Um, At one point in the interview with her, she mentioned something about, you know, did you, people would say, did you notice anything? Like they would say, did you notice anything? But what she heard was, what they might as well have said instead was, didn't you notice anything? Almost like, well, I must have done, you know, to internalize. And I can imagine how that would feel. Like I must, then I must feel like I did something wrong, right? Because I didn't notice anything. Like I, implying that I should have noticed something, right? Like it's implying that, I was wrong in some, some way, like I did something wrong in not noticing. Um, So I totally heard that loud and clear. And I think that can be the experience for many people. And when it comes to suicide, Um, unfortunately for her, she worked in the space of hospice and end of life and things like that. And so the people that work in that space have that level of compassion because they you know they see death and work around death on a regular basis. And she did say that that was a very good environment for her to be in as she was navigating that loss, but also later when she ended up having three miscarriages, all very different miscarriages too. I highly recommend listening to the episode because she really does explain how different, each loss of those babies were, and the different impact they had, um, and we talked a lot too, also about how women who are experiencing, and even couples, even even the significant other, who are going through that type of loss, how there needs to be more compassion brought to that experience. You know, like she mentioned in the episode, you go to pay your copay, and you just you just had to you know, deliver a baby that was not going to be going home with you, right? And, but then you got to go to the front desk and pay your copay, and there's all these women with their big bellies and happy and, you know, it just needs to be more compassion and maybe a different method of care for someone who is just experienced a loss, maybe for the second, third, fourth time, um, because Grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative and every single loss stacks up on each other. Um, and what really she talked about what really got her through was starting to write. And when her she lost her husband, that's what she started a blog a week later and she'd blogged for every day for 365 days. and she still continues to write. And it's really been a therapeutic way for her to work through what she had been feeling. And also, more importantly, too, I think, or equally important, is to communicate to her family and loved ones what she was going through and what she needed and what, how others could support her. And because if you think about it, it's a lot easier to write that out on a blog and say, hey, read this, and you'll know where I'm at, rather than having to repeat, you know, yourself over and over and over. um, Just one place that you can point people to. um, Yeah, that where you pour your heart out. And I'm not saying you all have to start a blog. I'm a writer, too. And so that resonates with me. That's kind of what I did, too. And but it is very therapeutic and. Maybe it's not writing a blog. Maybe it's, you know, that's why you see a lot of people, too, that, that turn to Facebook and different groups like that to share and open up and, and all of those things. And that can be great. But what's different about social media and that dynamic is just like in when you're at the grocery store, just like when you go into the post office, you're going to run into people who aren't prepared to hear what you have to say, who maybe don't want to hear what you have to say, who maybe hear what you have to say, but then say the wrong thing or don't know what to say. And so they say something hurtful or harmful. Ultimately, you have to find what works for you, what feels good to you. And um, you know, and there are harmful things that can make you feel better but aren't very good for you either. And that's, those are STURBS, short-term energy-relieving behaviors, which I've mentioned in an episode. I have a whole episode devoted to STURBS. Um, but blogging and writing was a healthy outlet for her. And I want to bring up, too, and this is a, a point that she brought up because, and I want to highlight also, because there are people listening who may not have access you may not have internet. You may not have access to resources and or people or organizations or certain books or whatever it may be. I mean there's privilege in finding things and in, in being able to find things that help you heal. And obviously as a master social worker, Ariel had the tools and the access and the education for things that would help her emotionally and feel supported when she was going through those losses and for those that don't have that education backing um, you have to look for it you have to find it elsewhere and I know I did Um, I had hired a life coach at one point and again there's privilege in even saying that right so I think there is, and especially to coming back to emotional health, um, it's trying to create access and means for people to um, learn and grow and educate themselves. This is, I mean, even just this podcast is my way of sharing and giving back um, for free. Um, I give it freely. I bring people on the podcast who have, you know, some terrible experiences in their lives, who have turned their lives around to, to bring hope to other people. Um, I don't take sponsorships. I, you know, this podcast doesn't pay me in monetary, you know, ways, but I I get so much back from it emotionally and just feeling fulfilled and... I just really enjoy it, and I I like connecting with people one-on-one and hearing their stories and sharing their stories and creating the graphics and writing, you know, the show notes, and I do all of that. I pour my heart and soul into this because I really feel the message is important, and many people have a cell phone. Most people have a cell phone. Um, There aren't, you know, that's the one thing a lot of people have, and so if you have a cell phone, you have access to podcasts, right? And there are so many podcasts out there. There's so much free education out there. It's blows my mind. And that's another incredible thing of the time we live in. And if you don't have internet at home, you can go to your public library. You can access blog posts. You can um, listen to podcasts, I think, probably too, even at the library. There's so many Points of access, I think that people don't consider um, as a way to educate and learn and and grow and and te- learn from others. Um, so I think that yes, access to emotional health resources is a problem. I do feel like maybe it just takes a little out of the box thinking to find those resources, or and maybe it's a part of it is just educating people on where they can find those resources so check out your local library and I'm going to bring a podcast again because I know you're listening to this but I didn't start listening to podcasts probably until within the past year and a half and I'm kind of hooked although I do love um, crime true crime podcasts crime junkie is one of my favorites and but Yes, there's so much. I mean, you can look up any, so many different topics. Um, YouTube, I mean, yeah, the library of internet resources is abundant. Uh, So, and yes, not all resources are good. Not all resources um, are probably helpful, but find something that resonates with you and, and, Find more of it. Um, yeah, I think the information's out there. Sometimes we just need to get a little creative on, on where we're looking. That's my rant on that. <laughs> um, I do just want to share one thing that if you haven't listened to um, Ariel's podcast episode yet, I'm just going to read this one portion of of what she had said. We only see the moment that we're in the page that we're on and I was really stuck there on those particular pages of grief for a long time not understanding that the pages would flip and at some point I would be feeling differently and this is what happens to so many grievers we get stuck on the page we can't see a future ahead it's unknown so it's scary We don't know how we're going to go on without that person. Or if it's a less than loving relationship, we don't know how to move on with that person. That can be grief, too. And we get stuck there. And actually, just this week, I had a client of mine share um, talking about um, a group that, that they're in and how... Especially for men, it's not particularly acceptable to share your emotions and share how you're feeling and express yourself and talk about grief. And, and you know, I just had to say, well, those aren't your people. You got to find your people. You got to find those that support you. But also, too, I shared, you know, we do get to a point when we don't feel like we have to share all of that stuff like we used to. We get to a point where the emotion has been addressed. So, therefore, we're not, we don't have that same emotional response when we start talking and telling the story. That's what healing is. That's when you know you're healing. When you can talk about it and you don't end up a pile of mess on the floor. You can talk about it and you don't get pulled into the past and start crying and, you know, getting emotional and, feeling those same old familiar feelings that you were so used to feeling because you felt them day in and day out for so long. That's what healing is. When you get to the point where that's not the same reaction, that's not the same pattern of behavior, that's when you know you've been doing the work. And the only way you get past that, the only way you can get through that, the only way that you can have a conversation in the future and not be pulled back into those same responses is by doing the work. That's it. That's you have to do the work. And that's what grief recovery is. Grief recovery is addressing the grief, the four letter word that is given all kinds of labels that is only thought to be just about death. But it's so much more. As long as we are treating people like they are in a mental health crisis, or as long as we're treating the mental health crisis like a mental problem, like a logical problem, like a brain problem, we're not going to see solutions. We're not going to see progress. And we're not going to see people getting emotionally well. If this message today resonates with you, I don't want you to lose hope. Don't lose hope. Look to your community for resources, to people that you know, for support. Find your people. Find what works for you that help that can help you heal. Because your future depends on it. Even if you don't have a master's degree or have developed a really amazing app, your life has purpose and We often find our purpose in our pain. So just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Just keep moving forward every day, little by little. Because just like grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative, so is healing. So everything that you're doing to move yourself forward, that's cumulative too, but in a good, positive way. So keep doing those things. And remember, you always have this podcast to come back to. There's tons of other grief podcasts out there to inspire and to help you feel like you're part of a community. Because grievers, we're everywhere. We're everywhere because grief is everywhere. You just never know what the person walking by you on the street is going through. All right, well, those are my takeaways and reflections for episode 51. And I feel like I was all over the place, but I hope it was helpful and that you took something good from it. Um, Yeah, just thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.